This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I don't understand how one investigator has this much control. The FBI has this huge backlog of forensic work that has never been done, DNA that's never been analyzed. The victims and the victims' families have absolutely no sense of closure. And I think Lolly and Julie's case is a really sort of vibrant case to illustrate this point. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Catherine Miles is truly a dogged journalist. She wrote a book called Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. Catherine digs into the case of a possible serial killer in a national park more than two decades ago. But she has met with resistance from investigators, and a DNA test could solve a string of murders. So why aren't they doing something? So this is May of 1996, right? Yeah, you know, and it's starting to feel like a long time ago. I was a college senior in 1996, and I remember that year really well. And it was a year that I think that there was a fair amount of kind of uncertainty that was happening in America. This was the year of the Atlanta Olympic bombings. There was a lot that was happening, I think, politically as well, too. And it was also, I think, a really sort of defining era in terms of LGBTQ issues and and really starting to have those conversations on a national level. 
So where does the story take place? The murder of these two young women, Lolly Winans and Julie Williams, is in Virginia in Shenandoah National Park. But for me, this story is a lot bigger than that. I really wanted to foreground the story of Lolly and Julie and make sure that they were really sort of front and center for the whole book as a whole. And so so I actually began the story much earlier, telling the story of these two really extraordinary women, both as individuals and then how they sort of found each other and fell in love as well. Well, let's hear it. Tell me how they met and who they were before that. Julie Williams was a young woman who grew up in Minnesota and was what her friends used to call a uh, one-woman Peace Corps. She was fluent in Spanish and beginning in high school, she would volunteer to interpret for women who were domestic assault survivors. She was a geologist by training, and by the time she had graduated from college, had already done a ton of work, either missionary work in Central and South America. She had been on archaeological digs throughout Europe. She had been doing geological and water work on um, really remote native lands in northern Minnesota. So was just highly competent in the world and really skilled. And she had gone to an organization called Woods Women, this really remarkable sort of women-centric outdoor organization to take a canoeing class and just fell so in love with the organization that she came back then to take a leadership class in May of 1995. And it was there that she met Lolly Winans, who was sort of the yin to her yang, where Julie could be a little reserved, a little introverted. Lolly was this just larger-than-life figure who people just fell in love with wherever she was. She was a big Grateful Dead fan and, you know, was always kind of at the center of any party that she was at, usually with a corona in her hand, and was really funny and outgoing. And she was a student at Unity College, and she, like Julie, was also a sexual assault survivor. And Lolly had really found her way in outdoor recreation programs, and she had committed to launch an outdoor program and a wilderness program for sexual assault survivors, a sort of therapeutic place where people could really kind of come to terms and really find a new way back into their bodies. So she was doing an internship focused towards her graduation so that she could do this. And by all accounts, it was love at first sight, bells and whistles and birds and everything else like that. And and the two really just fell head over heels in love. And their colleagues and coworkers really fell in love with them as well, too. At the end of that, they had been in this very sort of safe kind of cocoon where it felt okay, really, to be exploring the sexual relationship. And at the end of that summer, they had some really hard choices ahead of them going into this this social milieu that was really not at all welcoming to a lesbian couple. So they had sort of a tumultuous year When Lolly was back in school, Julie had moved to Vermont to be close, but they had come out the end of that year really having committed to this very long-term romantic relationship and had decided to take a week to go to Shenandoah National Park to kind of be with each other and kind of re-engage before they were going to be moving in together. Tell me a little bit more about why they felt so conflicted to be together at that time. Is this society or is it their families? I think it's just really where we were culturally in 1996. You know, this was an era in which the Supreme Court had just confirmed that anti-sodomy laws were constitutionally legal. We have states like Colorado and Oregon passing or at least trying to pass these legislative acts that are sort of identifying homosexuality as potentially illegal and certainly immoral. This is three years before Matthew Shepard is really brutally murdered. So it's just not really 
a safe space for a lot of LGBTQ type folks to be there. And so I think certainly for these two young women who in a lot of ways were still exploring their sexuality and trying to decide to what degree they wanted their sexuality to be a part of their sort of outward and political identity, there was a lot at stake. There also was a real reckoning beginning in the 80s and still going on today with issues of things like sexual harassment and sexual assault that were happening, not just in these wilderness organizations, but also within our national parks, often employee on employee. And so for a lot of people, especially people who identify as so-called subordinate social groups, whether that's because of gender or sexuality or race or anything else like that. These were not organizations where people felt welcome. So switching over to the story, Lolly and Julie decide in May of 1996 that they want to go into the wilderness. So they go on a little hiking adventure in Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. What's that park like? It's a really interesting park because it's very close to Washington, D.C. It's a really easy drive. And so in that regard, it's sort of the opposite of remote. But what's really interesting about the park is it's this long, narrow park that I sort of equate to the sort of shape of a lizard. If you can kind of picture that going down the Shenandoah Mountains. And it has one road that goes through, this one road called Skyline Drive. So while that is very congested and hectic, especially during the summer, if you get just off that road, road, it really does feel like utter and complete wilderness. And so that can be really exciting for folks who want a true backcountry experience. But it also raises challenges for the rangers in terms of patrolling and as we're going to see really quickly in this particular story for personal safety as well. Before this happened in 1996, was this considered a safe park for people to go to camp out in? Yes and no. I mean, I think that all of our national parks are comparatively safe when you compare them to, for instance, urban environments. But, you know, a couple of things were happening here. First, because there is such ready access from Washington, D.C., you do see this influx of folks, some of whom are looking to kind of hide under the radar a little bit. And by 1996, our national parks were already in real crisis in terms of underfunding, a problem that really continues today. And so in the spring of 1996, Shenandoah is understaffed in terms of its rangers. The rangers are under-equipped in terms of their gear, their radios, for instance, famously don't work. And so the rangers can't even communicate amongst one another. They're undertrained. Their access to things like the sort of most up-to-date weaponry is all lacking in that. So all of this kind of comes together to kind of create sort of a, a perfect storm of circumstances that would allow a serial murder to move without a trace within the park. As an aside, I didn't realize that park rangers carry weapons. There are two types of park rangers, and I don't know that I really realized this either. There's interpretive rangers, who are the folks that are leading us on nature walks and things like that. And then law enforcement rangers, who have all of the sort of legal rights and privileges of state police or FBI. And with our national park system, there's this very sort of strange division of labor where the FBI and then these law enforcement rangers have joint purview. And so the idea is these two cultures, which are very, very different and not really compatible, are supposed to come together and join forces to investigate crimes. And as I detail in the book, that creates some really, I think, unfortunate circumstances that make these cases really hard to solve. Well, let's start from their trip. Can you take me through, they arrive, they check in, they pay their fee. What happens after that? 
one thing that is both, I guess, good news for the telling of the story, but also I think really emotional for me is I was able to access their journals that they were writing during this. So we do actually have a really good sort of day-to-day account of how they were spending their time. They had sort of committed to this trip. They were both very experienced backcountry campers and and hikers, and and they could have been covering a lot of mileage every day if they had wanted to. But they really just wanted this to be sort of a reconnection trip, and they really wanted to focus on their relationship. So they were taking it really slow, which is great. And so they were spending some time on the Appalachian Trail, which runs through there, and doing, you know, just a lot of sort of camping, really beautiful spots far removed from everyone else. And Doing a lot of personal work, I think, doing a lot of relationship work, doing a lot of that kind of journaling. And so I think it really was a beautiful moment in their lives in a lot of ways. So at some point, the two women decide to go down this very disused trail. And this is such a big question mark for me. It's never become clear how and why they even knew this trail existed. It wasn't even on all of the maps. But there's a trail called the Bridal Trail, which leaves from a fairly well-attended resort called Skyland. And at one time, the Bridal Trail was literally where all these horseback riding events would take place. But that required people to cross this very busy road. So eventually, the stables at Skyland relocated their horse trails so that folks wouldn't have to cross the road. And at that point, the bridal trail really fell into disuse. Even today, there's no sign marking the trail. I have been there countless times and I still have to search for it a little bit. Somehow they found this trail and they descended about a third of the mile down the trail. And then like any good backcountry camper should, they then bushwhacked off the trail about 200 yards and they found this very pristine location next to a stream. It's a perfect backcountry hidden site. And they set up their tents, they set up the backpack gear, water purifier, all of that sort of thing. We don't know how the murderer found them. I speculate in the book that I think he must have followed them down the trail because the tent was all but invisible from the trail. And in fact, once this search begins for the two women, rangers will repeatedly walk by this tent site and not even see their tent set up. It was that hidden. But at some point, this person comes in, very sophisticated crime, what forensic psychologists call an organized crime, as opposed to the sort of disorganized crime of passion that tends to be very messy and and leave a lot of evidence. Like he didn't stumble on them, saw the opportunity, killed them, and then took off and left all these clues behind. This is someone who plotted to do something. Yeah, and that's what's really, really terrifying, right? This was a person who saw them, came prepared with a murder kit, tracked them through the wilderness, and then managed to subdue these two very strong, athletic, competent, confident women who also had a dog with them. Hmm. He brought this murder kit that included duct tape. He bound and gagged them first with the duct tape, then with their own long underwear, sexually assaulted at least one of them, had them separated. We think Julie was the primary target for him, then very brutally and decisively murdered these two women and escaped with almost not a trace. Just one very decisive slice to both throats. So efficient, which means I think we're going to get to this sounds like somebody who's done this before because he's plotted so well. 
I do. I lay out a case in the book. I wanted to try to be as objective as possible yeah. so that readers could come to their own conclusion because while the FBI believes they know who did this, this is still an open case. Okay. And so one of the things I try to do in the book is walk through who the FBI thinks did it and why, and that indictment. And then I also offer another suspect, which is who I think did it. And one of the things I really wanted readers to have the opportunity to do is to be able to go through and do their own kind of investigation and come to their own conclusions about who they think did it as well. Right. So... They are killed. Is anything taken? Has he looted their belongings at all? It's a little hard to tell because one of the things that I think is really interesting and important here is that wilderness crimes as a crime scene is just a completely sort of foreign and difficult concept, especially to the FBI. Yeah. So even understanding where a crime scene in the wilderness begins and ends, it's just not like a bedroom in a house where you secure the premises and you can see what's been taken out of the drawers and look for fingerprints. None of that makes sense in the backcountry. So we can't know exactly what they had in their backpacks. It appears that it looks like this person may have taken underwear from Julie, which is why I think the person who I name in the book is such a strong suspect. There's some other reasons as well, but certainly targeting them, certainly there was a sexual component to it for sure, and then disappears. And again, that's one of the real challenges with these wilderness cases is sometimes it takes a really long time to figure out that someone is missing and then even longer to figure out where they are. And so... Whereas if someone might be killed in their house, it might be just hours before the FBI or the state police or whomever is on the scene and able to collect evidence. In this case, it's days and maybe even a week before the authorities even arrive. So my question is about communication right now. This happens in 96, and I got my first cell phone, I think, in fall of 94. Did they have cell phones? Certainly they wouldn't have worked out in the wilderness. At one point, Julie had sort of one of those, do you remember those old-timey, like, car phones yes. that were sort of in a bag and it had, like, an antenna? At one point, Julie had one of those, but certainly they didn't have cell phones on their person. And even today, when I'm in Shenandoah, there are places in Shenandoah where I don't have cell reception, which I think is part of that kind of quasi-remoteness that it has. Yeah. Were they in contact, regular contact with their families when they went on these types of trips? That was part of the delay. So Lolly was largely estranged from her family. She was an incest survivor, and that had really, I think, rocked the family, and her parents really struggled to deal with that. So Lolly's family had become her circle of friends, most of whom were also very active in the backcountry and outdoor leadership-type programs. So it was very usual for them to go weeks or even months without communicating because they were all off in the backcountry. Julie had a great relationship with her family, and it was actually her father who first notified the rangers. She was overdue first to move out of her apartment and then later to begin a job that she was really excited about. And so when her roommate, who was really miffed because she wasn't there to help move out of the apartment, he called Julie's parents. And, and that evening, at first, they were like, well, that's 
that's okay. This has happened before. Julie's just not near a phone. We'll hear from her soon. But there was something that just kind of stuck out and it didn't feel right to them. And so that night, which was a Thursday night, they thought, well, well, maybe we should call authorities. But who is the authority here? Shenandoah spans something like five counties. So sheriffs don't quite work. They call the National Park headquarters and they get a an answering machine that says, you know, we're closed, call back tomorrow morning. So there's another delay. When they finally get a hold of rangers on what is a Friday, rangers have to make a decision, how big of a deal do we think this is? And then at first they don't because they're really accustomed to folks who show up late or forgot to tell someone that they decided to stop by and see a friend or something like that. So the search begins really fairly casually, which is appropriate at that time. And it's not until several days go by that the search really starts to amplify. And then eventually Lolly's dog Taj appears without a collar on, looking rattled, looking hungry. And that's when everything changed. Everyone agreed that there was no circumstance in which these two women would not have been with their dog. So the appearance of a very rattled Taj is what really accelerates the search. So what's the last entry in their travel journal? What does it say that they did? They found this little spot? It's heart-wrenching, actually. They weren't so much talking about the places they were. They were talking about their relationship. And Julie and Lolly's last entry both are just really talking about the love that they have for each other. The idea that while that past year of living apart and trying to decide what does it mean to be a same-sex couple, that had really kind of taken a toll on both of them. And so their last entries are just so forward-looking. They're like, this is the love of my life. I'm committing to this person. I cannot wait to get the summer going. I cannot wait to get the rest of my life going with this person. And that's the real heartbreaking aspect of this for me. So they finally, I'm assuming, stumble upon this crime scene. This is the first of several puzzles that, again, I try to lay out as objectively as possible for readers because I want them to be able to come to their own conclusions. But it's late. It's on a Saturday. At this point, the ranger who patrols this area of the park and who's responsible for patrolling this particular trail has walked by the tent site several times and not seen the tent because it's so hidden. It's dusk and these two male rangers embark down the trail. Dusk falls very dramatically in the Shenandoah Valley, right? You know, because these guys are on the east side of the valley. So it's, it's really quite dark. And then these two rangers just say they happen upon the tent, which has always been a question for me. Hmm. Interestingly, the ranger that happened upon it was one of two rangers involved in this case who wouldn't talk to me. So I was never able to ask him how it was that he happened to find it. But once this tent is found, it is immediately the fog of war in the Shenandoah National Park. And the authorities there start to make a series of catastrophically terrible and in some cases utterly indefensible decisions, including withholding from both the media and park goers and the general public that this murder had occurred. For about 48 hours, they tried to pass it off first as a bear attack and then as a murder-suicide, which again, two women bound and gagged at this point, 50 yards apart from each other, their throats slit. How this is anything other than a double murder is absurd. And yet the park withholds this from the millions of people who are coming into the park and backpacking or bringing their families, they have no idea that a potential serial killer may be among their midst. And and for me, that's, again, one of the most horrifying moments in this story.
Will we return to the two park rangers that you said you have some questions about? Do they play a part later? They sure do. And one of the big questions for folks in all of this, folks who really follow true crime, may be familiar with a series of murders called the Colonial Parkway Murders, which began in 1986, also on Virginia National Park property. And four of the rangers who worked the Colonial Parkway murders were also the rangers working this murder 10 years later. Wow. And so some people have tried to draw some real comparisons between the Colonial Parkway murders and the Shenandoah murders. And in fact, at one point, the FBI strongly suspects Two of these rangers, not only do they compel the rangers to take lie detector tests, but they also are able to get court permission to search their vehicles, search their homes. That's how strong of a suspect they were at one point for the FBI. Well, just to recap for listeners who heard Blaine Pardot, who wrote a book on the Colonial Parkway murders, I can't remember how many couples that were murdered. Is it four? There's some questions about which murders should be considered Colonial Parkway murders and which shouldn't, but four, I think, is a safe number. Some of them are remote. The Colonial Parkway seems like a major thoroughfare, but I've driven it and it's scary at night. Even now, I can't imagine what it was like in the 80s. And some of these were in remote areas where people really had to know where to go. So I see that comparison as being totally valid. That is also an open case, too. That's a serial killer who hasn't been caught yet. So FBI, are they in when they discover these bodies and now they're working with the park rangers? So it takes a while. So the rangers find the bodies. The first thing the rangers do is they secure the site as best as they can. But again, it's not like taping crime scene tape on the front door of a house, right? So where do we even put tape? Like, where does this begin and end is a question. It's the middle of the night at this point. And by the time they get a hold of the FBI, it's several more hours. And by then it's so dark, there's nothing anybody can do. So it isn't until then Sunday morning, right? So the women have been reported missing on a Thursday. Now it's a Sunday morning before, for instance, the medical examiner is able to get there, before they're able to remove the bodies, before they're able to start doing any evidence collection. So that's a problem. And it's definitely rained since the women were killed. So that's also a problem. And then we start to see this culture war between the FBI and the National Park Service Rangers. The FBI has just created a brand new organization within them called their evidence response teams who are responsible for collecting the evidence. That was something, an initiative that came out of the Oklahoma City bombings in 1992. So we have this brand new evidence response team that's never been called to a violent crime scene and who were trained to secure urban places. And then we have these Park Service law enforcement rangers who are experts at backcountry crime investigation, but the FBI has primacy. Hmm. And so we see this like budding of heads in terms of evidence collection. And, and what multiple investigators who worked this case told me was that undoubtedly evidence that could have closed this case was lost because of this and because of the decisions about how they, what they ended up doing was bagging it all up in trash bags, taking it to another ranger station and trying to investigate it there. And there are some colossal missteps that happened there that just removed what could have been essential evidence. But they were able to collect DNA evidence. Is that right? They do. They collect hair and they collect some male DNA that was on the gag that was used to gag one of the women. There's other trace evidence that has not been 
recollected now that we have mechanisms that can go back over through things like sleeping bags, duct tape, and get that really tiny little almost molecular evidence. So May, springtime in Virginia, I can't imagine there aren't scavenger animals around with these two women and their remains for at least a week. We think that they were out there. Well, one of the good news pieces of the rain and the fact that when Lolly and Julie arrived in Shenandoah on May 19th of 96, Shenandoah was going through this incredible heat wave, record-breaking heat. This huge storm moves through on the Wednesday of their trip, sort of halfway through their trip, and it brings cold, rainy weather. One thing that was actually helpful about the cold, rainy weather is I think it did prevent a lot of scavenger activity, and it also minimized insect activity on the bodies as well, too. So it didn't look as if scavengers had gone through and disturbed the crime scene, but of course, no one will ever really know. So there is, it sounds like, for lack of a better term, a pissing match between the National Park Rangers and the FBI. Where do they start? There's the murder-suicide. I'm assuming that the FBI wrote that off pretty quickly based on the crime scene. Right. And word eventually gets leaked to the media. So the women are found very late on a Saturday. Sunday is sort of evidence collection day. By late Monday, the media has received word that there has been a double murder in one of the most popular national parks in the country. And all of a sudden, there's this huge just cloud of media descending on the park. And again, in these initial media press conferences, they continue to try to say that they think that this is a murder-suicide, that there is not a third party involved here. And this goes on for another couple of days. I'm so confused by that. Is that an attitude that the National Park Service has now, that they are so protective of visitors coming and the money that comes in that they would do that? One of the things that was very troubling to me in my research for the book is what a problem the National Park Service has in terms of dealing with crime. Mm -hmm. There is no codified mechanism for how parks should deal with violent crime. And so what both the Inspector General of the Department of the Interior and the Government Accountability Office has determined is that we have a major problem right now with how violent crime is investigated and reported in our national parks. What we know is that there's a profound under-reporting of violent crime and an under-reporting of even inept or even malicious behavior on the part of rangers. And that was another thing I really wanted to call attention to in this book is how safe are our national parks really and how concerned should we really be about safety there? Do you have any idea with these rangers, the area that each person is responsible for covering? This is where that sort of attrition and that sort of funding really comes into play. Shenandoah was understaffed with rangers and the rangers there were doing a great job. I think most of the rangers were doing their absolute best work, but there weren't enough of them. And what I found now is that there are some national parks that don't have any law enforcement rangers or they have one law enforcement ranger who's literally covering thousands of acres. You just can't can't be effective in that kind of environment. So if we go back to the investigation, at what point do they give and say, okay, it was a murder and somebody is out there and now we're trying to work on that? 
It was really the work of very dogged reporters and one publication that no longer exists, but there was a small niche newspaper called the Washington Blade, Hmm. which was an LGBTQ publication. And a reporter for the Blade is not going to give up on this case. And he keeps showing up at these press conferences and he's like, how can this possibly be a murder-suicide? And they it's these reporters that really force the issue and force the park service and the FBI to acknowledge that they are in fact dealing with a double murder. There's already been one murder of a young woman, Alicia Showalter Reynolds, who was murdered just outside the park in March of 96. Her body was found just about two weeks before Lolly and Julie were murdered and was found very near the park. And then that summer, there would be multiple other murders of young women right around the park. And so for people like forensic psychologists and for profilers at the FBI, this very clearly became for them the work of a serial killer. But that wasn't the way in which the investigation unfolded. Tell me about Alicia. Did the media know that story that happened two weeks earlier? It was hugely reported upon. Alicia Showalter Reynolds was a very talented graduate student at Johns Hopkins. She was studying pandemics, actually. And she had been traveling from Washington to Charlottesville. Her twin brother was going to be getting married. And Alicia and her mom had planned to spend the day buying dresses for the wedding. She was driving down what was a very rural road at the time called Route 29. And at that point, the Route 29 stalker had already started his work. And his MO was basically to signal women that there was something wrong with their cars and kind of flag them down. And then when they stopped, he'd show up and act like he was this very concerned sort of Boy Scout guy who, you know, I noticed there were flames under your car and this is really dangerous and you should have that looked at. And he'd offer them a ride to a service station. And this had been going on and the sort of creep factor had been increasing significantly in this rural part of Virginia. And what folks think now is that he'd been sort of preparing to kind of take further action against his victim. And he chose Alicia, got her in his vehicle, which was a a truck. We know that it was either a dark green or a very dark blue, almost kind of black truck. And then again, very brutally murdered her, buried her in a shallow grave off of a very remote road that would be hard to know about. And so had led folks on this this sort of six-week search for her body, which had, again, just been found just a few weeks before Lolly and Julie. The man who killed her is the Route 29 stalker? That's the same person you're saying? We think so. Again, like with the Colonial Parkway, it's hard to know how many people we're dealing with right here, whether all of these Route 29 cases were one person or more than one person. But certainly there was a very strong MO that was happening in about 30 of these stalker cases on Route 29. And authorities believe that those were all one person. Okay, so we're on the investigation with Lolly and Julie. At what point do they connect this with maybe this is somebody who's responsible for multiple killings? They don't. (laughs) The investigators do not, which is remarkable because you literally have the founders of the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit, people like John Douglas, saying this has got to be the work of a serial killer. But for about 14 months the FBI and the National Park Service Rangers go through a series of suspects, including one another. And then by July of 1997, the case has basically gone cold at that point. And as investigators told me, they had literally run out of leads. 
So what's the next big break here? Is there DNA testing? There is. There's mitochondrial DNA testing, and that'll become really important. But without a suspect to compare the DNA to, it doesn't really do a lot of good. So at this point, the case is just languishing. And then in July of 1997, a young man named Daryl David Rice, who was a computer programmer in Eastern Maryland, suffered from significant mental health issues, including bipolar schizophrenia. In the spring of 1997, his life is completely unraveling. His father, lived right outside of Shenandoah, and he would spend a lot of his time cycling in the park. So in July of 97, he's been fired from his job. His mental illness has become completely unmanageable. He's not sleeping. He's smoking a lot of marijuana. And one day in 97, he drives into the park. He sees a woman cycling down that main thoroughfare, Skyline Drive, and he decides he's going to drive back and forth. He's harassing her. He's yelling expletives out the window. At one point, he throws a soda bottle at her, and then he runs her off the road and in a really menacing way says, I'm going to get you. At that point, she screams. She runs for help. The little store that she runs to tries to call the rangers. They can't get through because the rangers' radios aren't working. They eventually get a description of Rice and his truck to the rangers. And in that moment, the rangers are thinking, we've got our guy. This is the guy who killed Lolly and Julie. And they apprehend him. They remarkably bring him back to the young woman to identify, which must have been terrifying to her. And he asks, he says, did you ever solve that double murder from last year? And at that point, the Rangers are like, this is the guy. And so they really use the arrest of this harassment case, which again, is a crime, right? I'm not excusing Rice's behavior, but they use this arrest as the time they need to detain Rice and to start a case against him in earnest. And, And this case continues today. Millions and millions of dollars have been spent by the FBI, including embedding their leading counter-terrorist undercover agent in Rice's cell. They fabricate issues of the newspaper. They fabricate postal cancellation stamps from Europe, all in an effort to try to get Rice to confess to this murder. And they're able to do that for someone who should have a public defender and who I'm assuming has been officially diagnosed with a mental illness. You're allowed to fabricate and lie like that? In 2002, John Ashcroft, the Attorney General of the United States, makes a very public announcement that he's going to use brand new hate crime legislation, the first hate crime legislation in this country. He's going to use it to seek the death penalty against Rice in this brand new indictment. And he gives this bizarre public televised press conference in which he says, the nation has been shattered by September 11th, just just a few months after September 11th. It's been shattered. Hate crimes are on the rise. We're all looking for justice. And then he makes this conflation and he says, by putting Daryl Rice to death, the country is going to somehow heal from September 11th. It's a bizarre, just utterly bizarre combination of two things that just don't fit. So at that point, this becomes such a high-profile case that Rice is sort of given this dream defense team. And what they told me, too, is that the hardest thing for Rice to deal with was the fact that this guy, Mike German, the agent who was embedded in his cell, who then becomes Daryl's constant pen pal, they exchanged something like 50 letters. He'd come visit him during visiting hours. Hmm. The hardest thing for Daryl Rice was to come to learn that this guy he 
thought was his best friend was actually an agent. We had talked about the victims of whomever is the person who's doing this, and we don't think it's Daryl Rice. So we've got Alicia, you've got Lolly, and Julie, potentially from the same person. Did you mention there were a couple of other women after Julie and Lolly? Eight women. (sighs) One of the things we include in the book is a very detailed map that shows people just how close in proximity these murders are. And, And in some cases, there are very significant similarities, like, for instance, being bound with duct tape, the way in which the bodies are sort of tied into their sleeping bags, some really stark similarities. Is there DNA that connects all of them, or do we not have samples from everyone? We have samples, and at one point, jumping ahead a few years, after all of this has unfolded, the indictment has happened. An individual named Richard Mark Avanis kidnaps a young woman, Kara Robinson, who very heroically manages to extricate herself from her apartment after just this like horrific 12 hours of being raped. And she manages to escape his apartment and run to get help and to get the police. At that point, Avanit sort of knows that the police are onto him and he begins this multi-state high-speed chase, which ends with him committing suicide in his car. At that point, Avanitz becomes a suspect in multiple other crimes, including very briefly Lolly and Julie's. The state police of Virginia decide they have enough evidence to close three cases and tie them to Avanitz. And three of those cases are these eight that I'm mentioning that occur right around the time of Lolly and Julie's death. Hmm. For a very brief period, Avanitz is in fact a lead suspect in Lolly and Julie's case. There's DNA testing that happens that does not rule him out. And then for reasons that no one has been able to explain to me, at that point, the so-called Avanitz Task Force, which was supposed to be investigating multiple murders around the country, is disbanded. And they are told to not investigate Avanitz for anything else. So yes, there is DNA. And no, it has not been compared, despite the fact that the FBI lab has continually said that it should be. Who has the authority to make the decision that it all should be tested and let's close these cases? The lead investigator in this case, and and this is one of the things that just makes me furious. And this is one of the things that if I can hope that this book is going to do something, I'm hoping that what this book will do is create enough public momentum that the FBI has no choice. At one point, the FBI takes... DNA evidence from Lolly and Julie's crime scene. And they do a mitochondrial DNA test analysis on it. We have much more sophisticated testing now, but at the time that was sort of the best guess. And what a mitochondrial DNA test does is it compares evidence at 800 points on the DNA chromosome. So I'll take these 800 points of mine and compare them to yours and we'll see how similar they are. Mm -hmm. The FBI lab's policy is if a comparison comes back and 700 198 of those places are identical, then a person cannot be ruled out. And in fact, that person must be continued to be considered a viable suspect. The FBI gets this evidence from the crime scene. They compare it to Daryl Rice and they compare it to Mark Ivanitz. It comes back completely different from Rice. I don't know, 600 places are different. I'm making that number up, but it comes back with Ivanitz. 799 places are identical. And at that point, the FBI investigator says, rerun the DNA against Rice. And it is never tested against Ivanitz again. 
Had he been to Shenandoah Park, had he known the trails? Does he fit that profile? He definitely does. When the FBI and the state police go into his apartment, they find a chest that's filled with women's underwear, really disturbing pornography, locks of women's hair. And when he was on this high-speed chase, he was talking to one of his sisters, and she said, have you done this before? And and he said, yeah. And she said, how many times? And he said, more times than I can remember. One of the things that was really disturbing that we found was he also kept all these slips of paper that would have descriptions of women, descriptions of back roads, including the back road where Alicia Showalter Reynolds was found. And then just a log of women that he kept that he had met online or other sources, some of whom I talked to, who had no idea that they had gone on a date with a serial killer. As far as I can tell, there was a very brief moment of really what is only a few weeks where Avanitz was a suspect in this case. And then at that point, everything is dropped. So we don't know. I've been working with the Innocence Project to reinvestigate all of these cases. And we don't even really know where all of this evidence that was taken from Avanitz's house is right now. Has it been lost? Ivanitz's case, is that with the Virginia State Police or was that with the FBI? And that's also a little mushy. Oh my gosh. The evidence. (laughs) I mean, come on. The evidence was in a locker with the Virginia State Police. Terrible. Alicia Showalter Reynolds's mother, who's been a really great supporter of this investigation that I've been doing, I had to tell her that cloth gloves were found at Alicia's car. Cloth gloves that look identical to cloth gloves that were found at Lolly and Julie's crime scene. She didn't know that. And as far as she knows, those gloves have never been analyzed. Cigarette butts were found at both scenes. As far as we know, those have not been analyzed. Okay. Evidence was collected at these scenes. Some of it that was collected was poorly collected. We don't know precisely who has what, but there is a suspicion that we might have enough DNA at most or all of these eight murders to compare it to Avonitz, right, if we wanted to. Absolutely. The FBI lab is ready and waiting to compare it. I have an expert at the University of California who regularly works with the FBI doing very sophisticated DNA analysis. He's like, I just need a centimeter of each hair sample and I will answer this for you. And none of this has been received by the FBI. Okay. So let's talk about the families a little bit. I know that Lolly was estranged from her family. Have they talked to you at all or have you heard anything from them? Lolly's mother unfortunately died well before I began the book project. Lolly's father, when I began the book project, was in late stage Alzheimer's. So I was not able to talk to her parents. I was able to talk and continue to talk to her community of friends who really were her family. And they've been fantastic resources and supporters of this book. Because again, it's as important, if not more important to me, that Lolly and Julie remain the main characters in this book and not Rice and Ivanitz. I think too often in true crime, we forget about the agency of the victims and we really focus on the perpetrators. And I really wanted to keep Lolly and Julie and their communities front and center. Julie's family was really helpful and supportive when I was writing the book. And it's because they were all willing to sit with me and share stories and baby pictures and things like that, that I was able to really tell the story of who these two women were and why they were just so remarkable. So where do we stand now? Is Daryl Rice in jail or prison? 
So Daryl Rice was in prison. He did serve the full sentence for that assault against the cyclist. They tried to pin the Route 29 stalker cases on him. That didn't work. When it finally came back that none of this DNA was matching Rice in even the slightest, at that point, his trial had moved to jury selection. So it was just about to get going. And at that point, the prosecution thought, we literally have no physical evidence and the circumstantial evidence we have is so faint and so tangential that we're really concerned that we're not going to get a guilty verdict. And so what they did is they dismissed his case using a concept called without prejudice. And without prejudice basically means we really think we have a really solid case here, but there's been some procedural thing that's happened that's prevented us from pursuing this the way we want to. And so they can bring the case against Daryl Rice back at any moment. Hmm. And so he ultimately lives in a state of constant double jeopardy. And as far as I can tell, he's the only individual in America who currently is in this state where he can be brought back for a capital case at any time. And meanwhile, everywhere he goes, the local newspaper picks up on it and it's like serial killer is walking amongst us. And it's a tragedy because we come back to Lolly and Julie. They were advocates. They were survivors. It must have been really difficult for you to report on. It would have been difficult for me. I have felt so connected to them since 1996. As soon as I heard about the murders, it really shattered my sense of security in the backcountry. I've had untold numbers of people approach me after a book talk or a lecture and say, I remember that case and, and I've never gone back into the woods or I've never gone camping alone again. And in that case, I think that this really is a hate crime. I think for an entire generation of people, especially queer, non-binary women, this case continues to haunt them and continues to affect them in ways that has dramatically changed who they are whenever they go outside. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Matthew McGow on the LAPD officer who murdered her ex-boyfriend's wife. She was confiding in her parents and several friends, more than one, that there was this woman who was a LAPD officer. There were times that Sherry felt like she was being followed. So clearly it's stalking behavior, but there wasn't really a name for it. So there were a lot of incidents in the months leading up to the murder that were very concerning to Sherry. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. 
Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.